Uh, as we kind of enter into uh, this first few weeks of January, we're going to be uh, studying some different things that I'm calling cultural lies. Cultural lies are anthems uh, of today that I think are merely distortions of the truth. And so as I was thinking about this morning, I thought of a friend of mine who's been a part of my Wednesday morning men's group for several years, and I've gotten to know for many years. And I thought some of his background might apply with some of what we're going to be talking about today. And so I want to invite up my friend, John Bodingheimer. He's going to share some of his testimony of God's work in his life. Would you welcome him? Thank you. First of all, as I get used to this, good morning, church. Awesome. All right, that makes me feel a lot better. I was getting pretty nervous back there, and every song as it gets closer, just getting more and more nervous. So um, so just a little background on me. Uh, I grew up here in northeast Salem, um, had an older brother, parents, a really close extended family, and grew up in the Catholic church. And so I went to a Catholic elementary school probably about three miles down the road at St. Vincent de Paul. And as part of that, I was baptized as an infant, went through some of the milestones that come with being Catholic, um, like First Communion when I was eight, and um, my parents had it planned that we were only going to do elementary school there, and that we are going to go to public school after that. So when fifth grade hit, I got enrolled to Adam Stevens, and going from 100 kids in the whole school to 1,000 kids in three grades, so it was a huge adjustment. Um, and along with that, my parents were so awesome at being supportive with the church and the, um, the school for about over 10 years. They ran auctions, they, they helped with fundraising, but they were just burnt out. And over the next year of my sixth grade, we just slowly started fading away from church. And so going into a new school, not a lot of uh, regular church or faith talked about in the home. I just... I was struggling. I had bullies. I, I uh, didn't have a lot of friends as coming into a new school. And it wasn't really until I hit about sophomore year, I really felt like I was starting to find my groove. And um, I remember a, a classmate of mine who was persistent and asked me every Wednesday or every week, hey, you should come to youth group. Hey, you should come to youth group. Um, and I kid you not, it was like six months straight. And that wasn't enough convincing, one of my buddies who I was hanging out with at his house was there for about five minutes, and then his girlfriend pulls up to pick him up, and I said, hey, where are you going? He goes, oh, we're going to my uh, girlfriend's church. Do you want to go? Well, I had nothing else to do, so I jumped in the car and went, so it happened to be New Harvest, and the same church that my classmate kept on bugging me about. So we, uh, we went through youth group, you know, played some games, sung a couple songs, heard an, uh, a sermon, and I loved it. And it was completely different from what I was used to growing up. Um, not as much kneeling in church. So that was really nice. Um, <laughs> um, so for the, next, uh, for the rest of my high school career, I was, um, was going to youth group and loving it. And my faith was growing more and more. And I met my now wife, Anita, which I'm going to make her raise her hand and embarrass her a little bit. <laughs> um, Went on Mexico missions trips and campouts and all that fun stuff. And it wasn't until I was about um, 19, I just, I was, although out of youth group, was still fairly connected with the church and just something still didn't feel right. And all the teachings from my youth told me I had 
I had more task lists to follow up on, to be confirmed in my faith, as they called it. And I just remember, like, I, I just felt like I was chasing my salvation to a point. And uh, I was with a lot of uh, conversations with the youth pastor at the time and some difficult conversations with my parents that I just came to the conclusion I just need to get baptized. And so, although I don't recommend getting baptized twice, um, this was my decision, and it was my way of promising my life to the Lord. And so, um, had that done, fun fact, it was in the back of a pickup truck, so that's very unique to my story. (laughs) Um, Anyways, so after getting baptized, you know, you think, oh yeah, life's good now, right? Well, God has a funny way of testing you, right, as soon as you've pledged that. And over the next four years, I was just about to finish up my first year at Oregon State, and over the next four years, a lot of things happened. I got kicked out of Oregon State for bad grades, which that was a huge uh, shake in my foundation a little bit. And then I lost my first grandparent, which was really my first loss in a a very close um, role model of mine at the middle of uh, my sophomore year. And from there, it felt like every four to five months, somebody else passed away. And by the end of the four-year stretch of my college career, I had over nine people across from grandparents, from, uh, from friends' uh, sisters who unfortunately committed suicide, uh, his moms that, uh, my friend's mom who also had a freak accident, um, a coworker of mine. It's just, it just a lot, I can tell you a lot more later, but just a very hard time in my life. But with that came some highs too. Got engaged at 20, got married at 22, and ended up graduating from Oregon State at 23. And uh, as I kind of finished that chapter, my wife and I found jobs in Mount Angel. We were starting to settle down into married life and working, and got a year and a half in, it felt like the roller coaster was leveling out. So from there, we made the decision of we're going to start a family. And so super exciting times and felt very... Um, very blessed to be able to get pregnant within the first couple months, but after about eight weeks, we lost our baby. And uh, that was really rough for Anita and I. Um, it was six months of just why, right? Asking yourself why, what, what was this for? And I remember in August of 2018, we finally just came to the, to the conclusion, like, we're just going to give it to God. It's his now. It's his timing. I feel like we, we come to a point where we want to control so much, and that was one of those things we just weren't going to be able to. And God has a funny way of, as soon as you're ready, puts you back in. So September 2018, the next month, we were pregnant with Noah, our firstborn. And so during this time, there's a little bit left. I, uh, while Anita was pregnant, about December of um, 2018, I was just really struggling with work, having a hard time finding motivation to go. And luckily to a friend from college, was able to find a new role um, uh, here in Salem. And then I remember getting some good advice of like, hey, when you switch jobs, just take a week. Just take a week off. It gives you refresh mind, right? So, and this was before kids and looking back, that was really nice. Oh my gosh, that would be great. <laughs> um, but I remember halfway through the week just thinking, like just waking up with no stress and going, man we need to go back to church. Like I just, there was just some, something God was calling Anita and I. It was just, we need, we need to go back. And so as we kind of discussed, 
oh, where should we go? And I, I kid you not, I asked Anita, I was like, hey, what do you think about going back to church? She's like, I thought you'd never ask. I was waiting on you. And so I, like, I had no idea. I was, I was sitting there thinking that, oh, well, she, if she wants to go, she'll tell me, right? So, um, so anyways, as discussing, we were like, oh, where, where should we go back to church? And the one place stood out to us, and that was New Harvest. And that's where it all started for us. Um, and since then, we've had two beautiful boys, Noah and Elijah. Um, having the foundation of the church, uh, especially through times like COVID, has been amazing. Um, and we've been, as Tyler mentioned, uh, I've been involved in a Bible study for almost four years. And Anita and I have been going to a couple's Bible study. So I absolutely love it here. Uh, thank you guys for allowing me to share my story. And uh, yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> That was great, and a great setup for some of what I would like to share about. So as I shared this series on cultural lies, really for this uh, winter, spring, we're going to be going through the book of Ecclesiastes starting on January 29th. But for the three Sundays, this Sunday and the two following, I want to just focus on this thing that I'm calling cultural lies, which I think this time of year is especially important and poignant for us to focus on this idea that there are anthems of our day which are merely masquerading as the truth, meaning that there's key phrases, there's axioms, there's truth claims that are simply distortions of God-honoring truth. And so for three weeks, I just wanted to dive into, into these statements. And really, I was inspired by it when we studied 1 Timothy last fall, there was many mentions by Paul to Timothy of false teaching. And so we talked about some of these statements briefly, and I had many of you come up to me after the fact and ask questions and notice these things around society. And so it just kind of piqued my interest, and I thought we should probably spend a little bit more time focusing on these things. And so today the cultural lie that I want to focus on is you are enough. You are enough. It's the lie of the gospel of self-reliance and self-sufficiency that says you're enough, you can do it, you're capable on your own, you don't need anyone or anything else. And I think especially in early January, this is a message that you've probably heard over and over again. New Year's resolutions, New Year, New You, it's all around the gospel of self-reliance, that you have it within you to accomplish the thing that you want to move toward. But I think that this message is also deceptive. It's deceptive because it's like the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3, which says, did God really say do you really need him? Do you have to rely upon him? Do you have to obey him? Or can you do it on your own? It's the same lie as back in the garden. And so I know that this lie of self-sufficiency is attractive to us. There's a reason that society declares this statement that you are enough over and over again. And that's because we don't like to think of ourselves as weak and needy. We like to think of ourselves as sufficient and capable and strong that we can do the thing that we long for. And so I understand that we need this kind of encouragement, this push to let us know that we are capable. 
But when that idea becomes foundational, something gets twisted in us and we start thinking about ourselves first before anyone or anything else. And that's when the problems really begin. And so here's an example of a statement of you are enough from Brene Brown. And I know many of you like Brene Brown, and so this is not a negative thing about her. I think many of you will even agree with what she says here. Here's the quote. Life is, it's about waking up in the morning and saying, no matter what gets done or how, and how much gets done or how it's done, I'm enough and I'm worthy of belonging and love and joy. And so I think we could read that and on one hand say, well, yeah, she's right. And on the other hand, start to think, but is that true? She's right, but is that true? Now, this idea of you are enough did not just kind of come out of thin air over the last 10 years in our society. This is an ongoing shift, hundreds of years long, that we could kind of look at threads in various ways of how has our society been shaped to where this is a true statement to many people, that you are enough. And so this really comes from moving from a very God-centered understanding of life to a more, what our society is, very humanistic understanding of life, or what philosophers would, would describe as a postmodern view of life and society. It has rejected God, but somebody has to be in control of our lives, and so we've placed ourselves on the throne. And so we use statements like this to reinforce this desire that we have to be in control. We need these statements to help sustain this model of placing ourselves in control. You could trace this back in many ways, but I want to go back to the Enlightenment and a French philosopher named Descartes who said, I think, therefore I am. And when he said that, he was placing the mind over the body, and he was also playing, placing the human body over God, saying that our identity comes from who we are and what we think about ourselves. And then you can kind of trace this further along as a guy named Charles Darwin came up with evolutionary theory as it came to science, which said that everything was in flux, that God didn't preordain anything. It has just been slowly for millions and billions of years been evolving to the point where we get now. And so there is no such thing as human nature and human life. It's just kind of evolving along this spectrum. And then you get to the point where we are today, where there's another French philosopher who is more of an existentialist philosopher, and he said this, which I think kind of encapsulates Descartes and Darwinianism at the same, in the same way. He said, there is no human nature because there is no God to conceive it. Man is nothing else but that which he makes of himself. I think life in 2023, that, what he said back in the 1950s, that is how we approach life. We are nothing but what we make of ourselves. And so we have to say to each other and to ourselves that you are enough in order to sustain that model of life. And so I think this statement of you are enough and the statements we'll look at in the weeks to come operate like what Paul calls strongholds, strongholds. In 2 Corinthians 10, he says this, verses 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Now, what are strongholds? Well, he answers it 
in the next verse. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. According to Paul, strongholds are arguments and pretensions. They are the anthems that take us away from God. And through God's power at work within us, we can demolish these strongholds. And so if we have a goal for the next three weeks, it is that, to demolish strongholds and to demolish a statement like you are enough, which I think in our lives operates as a stronghold that pulls us away from God and causes us to try and rely on ourselves unsuccessfully. To do that this morning, I'd like to study John chapter 6, the very end of the chapter, John chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, you could turn there. We're going to be at verse 53, John 6, the fourth gospel, John 6, 53. And Jesus is teaching here, we'll hopefully be instructive for us around this idea of sufficiency and being enough. Jesus is teaching, and Jesus said to them, very beginning of verse 53, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his, of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to, them, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. This is the word of the Lord for us today. A powerful teaching from Jesus that I think he has a lot to share with us. But probably the first thing for us to say is that Bible scholars debate what is it that Jesus was talking about here. And some people believe that Jesus was very overtly and exclusively talking about the communion meal. Now, he didn't institute this for over a year after this when he met with the disciples in the upper room and shared that meal with him when he said, this, body is my, this bread is my body broken for you, this blood shed for you is the juice, the cup, so some scholars think that Jesus here is foreshadowing exclusively and only talking about communion. And so I think what we can say here is that they might be right, but there's no way that that's the only thing that Jesus was emphasizing. Because he says in verse 58, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. 
If Jesus was saying this is only about a meal that he's asking believers to take part in, then all believers would need to do is then share in that meal and they would have eternal life. It would be transactional. But just like when we partake in communion, we don't overemphasize the bread and the cup. What we emphasize is Jesus. And we partake of him as we partake in communion. What Jesus is saying here about his body and his blood that's going to be shed is he's inviting us to take part in him. And so in verse 56, I think, is the key verse for us to understand what he's saying throughout this whole thing. He says, as you partake in his body and his blood, you abide or remain in him, is what it says in the NIV. That person remains in him. In the ESV, they translate that word to abide. That person abides with him. And so to remain or to abide with Jesus is something that Jesus or John focuses on about the message of Jesus over and over in his gospel. It's something he's pushing toward because John is saying that Jesus is inviting us to partake in who he is. Just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit remain or abide in one another, so God longs for us to remain or abide with Christ. That's where our sufficiency comes from. And so that's kind of the background of the whole passage, and it leads us to be able to examine all the, the individual parts. And I think he begins with, as we think about sufficiency, he says at the very beginning, you are not enough. You are not enough. Verse 53, I think he just comes out and says it at the beginning. Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. You are not enough. You are insufficient. So I know that in our society that saying that phrase, that you are enough, is some level of helping you build an internal confidence because what you feel inside is an inadequacy and an emptiness about life. And so this kind of positive self-talk is what many of us rely on to help bridge the gap between the life that we feel within us and the life that we long for. And so we use statements like you are enough to take us beyond where we feel internally like we're actually able to go. But I'm convinced that all throughout God's word are examples and teachings that tell us that we are insufficient and inadequate. And at that point, that's when God does his best work. When we recognize that and come to him with our need, our inadequacy, our emptiness, our insufficiency are not reasons to feel poorly about ourselves. They're an opportunity for us to come to the Lord and to be built up in him. He works through our inadequacy by filling us with his divine fullness. On your own, you are not enough. That's what Jesus is saying here in John 6. Unless you take part in the life of Christ, unless he indwells you and empowers you, you are dead. You have no life in you. You are weak and powerless to save yourself. And this isn't just a one-off teaching for Jesus where he teaches this once and then moves on. This is something over and over emphasized within the scriptures. For instance, Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says that he's not competent or sufficient in himself. But in verse 5 it says our, his sufficiency comes from God. 
And then Jesus, later on in the book of John, in John 15, is teaching about being the vine and the branch. Now, we're the branches connected to him as the vine. And then he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You are not enough. You have no life in you apart from Christ. Even in Adam and Eve, going back all the way to Genesis 1 and 2 as God creates them, even before the fall, they are not sufficient on their own. God provides instruction and gives his revelation to Adam and Eve so that they know how to live in a way that honors him. So even they, God needed to provide instruction and help. They were not enough on their own. But of course, the good news is, this isn't the end of the teaching from Jesus. He moves on to his next point, which I would describe as this. You can be enough. You can. John 6 56 and 57, he says, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains or abides in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live, will be enough because of me. Saying that you can be enough is not just another way of saying you are enough, but you're not really trying hard enough. This isn't Jesus' way of kind of heaping shame on you and telling you that you're not doing it well enough, you're not trying hard enough, just give it a little bit more focus and energy, and you too will be enough. Rather, Jesus is presenting an opportunity, an opportunity that you on your own are not enough, but with Christ's work and empowerment in your life, you can be enough. That's what he's saying. And one of the ways the scriptures talk about this idea of being enough is through the themes of emptiness, of fullness, and then forgetfulness. And you can kind of trace the nation of Israel, this theme, over and over and over. For instance, as as the Israelites are being uh, delivered out of slavery by Moses and they cross through the, the Red Sea as the parting of the waters, they run into a problem as they have their freedom. They're hungry. They're hungry. And Jesus even mentions this in what he shares in John 6. God provides manna from heaven. He provides food for them to eat. So not only has he taken them from a place of emptiness, slavery, and is starting to lead them into the promised land, a place of fullness, on the way he's providing for their hunger, filling their need. But what happens? What happens? They grumble. They forget. They think manna's not good enough. They even start to hoard the manna, thinking that God might not provide tomorrow, so we should probably keep the stuff from today that we have left over, even though God said not to do that. So here's how God provides instruction to them around this idea of emptiness, filling, and forgetfulness. Deuteronomy 6 provides God's instruction to the nation as they're pushing their way toward the promised land. This is what he says. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. God's going to give you all these things. Out of your emptiness, he's going to fulfill you. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord. And so it's this theme over and over 
that we are empty people and God and his grace and in his mercy fills us. And what do we do? We forget. We forget. We turn away. You can be enough, but you move away from the opportunity to be enough pretty easily. You move away from it. This is why Paul, in Ephesians 3, his prayer for the church in Ephesus is that they would be filled with the fullness of God. That's his prayer for them. That's God's prayer for you. You're empty. God fills you. Be filled, but don't forget. Don't forget who filled you. What we often do is we start thinking about the things that God has given that fill us, and we focus on those things instead of the one who filled us. We focus on those things instead of the one who filled us. And so enough is offered to you, not through your own efforts. It's through God's provision, through him. You can partake of him. You can remain in him. You can abide with him. And in that place, you can be enough. Then Jesus continues on. You're not enough. You can be enough. But you often choose your own way. You often choose your own way. John 6, 66, the last verse that we looked at. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And this whole section, verses 60 through 66, include a, a couple interesting things that are mentioned by John and or Jesus. Jesus says early on there, then uh, he's feeling like he notices that they're grumbling, that they don't like what he's just taught. They recognize the difficulty of what he's asking for. And then he says, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? It's like he's saying, I can tell that you're doubting now, but what if this happens? And so on the surface, it looks like Jesus is saying, what if I was on the throne in power? Would you believe then? Would you want to follow my teaching then? But I think actually... What Jesus is saying when he's saying, what if I ascend to the place I was before is, how did Jesus ascend? How is he going to ascend in the years to come? By descending. The incarnation is God becoming man. And then within the incarnation, it's Jesus going to the cross. How does Jesus ascend? He does it by descending. So he's saying to these disciples, you think it's hard to believe this now. What about when I'm on the cross? Because the cross is the Messiah, the Lord of all, humbling himself to death on a cross for their sake and for our sake. And so like Paul says, this is a stumbling block. It's foolishness that the path of ascension is through humiliation and shame for the Messiah, for Jesus. That's his return to glory is by descending. And so I think Jesus is saying, if you don't believe now, it's going to be a whole lot harder down the line because I'm going to make this very difficult for you to see me suffer. The other interesting thing that I think Jesus points out or John points out about Jesus is he says, Jesus knew from the beginning those who wouldn't believe and would turn away from him. And so we talk about here that you often choose your own way. The reality is that God knows when we subtly want to turn away from him. When our hearts are distant from him. Jesus knew, and he still engaged with those disciples. He still gave this teaching. He did not say, well, I can tell some of you aren't really liking what I'm going to say, so I'm just going to move on. He continued to pursue them. And so what is God's heart for us, we who often choose our own way? It's like the heart of the prodigal father. 
whose son is off in the distance, and he sees his son returning, and he runs toward his son. That's God's heart for us. You often choose your own way, and yet God is running after you. So how do we put this all together? Everything about this idea of being enough and what Jesus says of partaking in his flesh and blood. How do we put this all together? Well, I think there's two truths that we have to hold up at the same time. The first is, very obviously, that you are not enough. On your own, according to Jesus, you have no life in you. You are not enough. But at the same time, what Jesus says here is that in Christ, you can be more than enough. Not just simply enough, but exceedingly enough, far beyond enough. You can be both of those things. In Christ, God's perfect power radiates through your weakness. In Christ, you can be transformed from one level of glory to another, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. In Christ, you can take hold of that which Christ has accomplished for you, as Paul says in Philippians 3. In Christ, you are being transformed so that who you are and who you are becoming resembles the one who has redeemed your life. You are not enough on your own, but in Christ, you are absolutely more than enough. And both of those things are true. So how do we put those together? Well, I like what Sharon Miller said. I saw this one day on Twitter, and I really liked it. She's she's a pastor in North Carolina. She said this, You are enough in the same way that a loaf of bread and a fish was enough. And I think that's the perfect way of putting it. A loaf of bread and a fish fed thousands of people, right? Transformed through the hands of Christ to provide a miracle. But on their own, they're just bread and a fish. They might feed half a person for lunch. Same thing with your life. On your own, you're just a person. You're not enough. You're never going to do anything. But in Christ, my gosh, God can do amazing things. He can, with bread and fish, feed thousands of people. And with your life, he can change the world. It's happened before. It can continue to happen again. Here's another way we could say it. How do we put these two together? That you are not enough and you are more than enough One of my favorites, uh, many of you know, is the Heidelberg Catechism, which begins with this. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus. On your own, you are not enough. But your life does not belong to you. You belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior Jesus. What does this look like practically? to be not enough and more than enough at the same time. One of the things that I, I'll often find myself talking to many of you about that we'll kind of talk strategically as a staff about is our Sunday morning gatherings. I think these t- this hour and a half of our time together is incredibly formative for all of our lives. God uses this time to shape us into who he wants to be. I think this is a powerful time. But I wonder, what, what would you say if I asked you, You know, we do a lot of things when we gather here. What's the most important thing we do? Out of everything we do for an hour and a half gathering together, what's the most important thing? Now, I think you can make arguments about all of it, from meeting somebody right as you walk in the front door. For some of you, that's probably the most important thing. To worshiping together, as I was a worship pastor for many years, I think that's a pretty important time. 
to opening God's word and allowing it to instruct us, to praying together and seeking the Lord and inviting him to work and move in us. I think you could argue for all of those times. Oh, and the greeting time, when we have fellowship with one another that hopefully extends beyond our time of gathering as well. All of it, vitally important. But I think the most important thing that we do is something that we haven't done. It's what Christ has done for us. We come to the table. That's the most important time, our time of response, of recognizing God's been working, he's been speaking to us, and now we respond to what he's done. The most important time is not something we've done, it's what he's done, and we get to partake in it. And that is something that I think puts into practice the words of Jesus in John 6 that we read. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, Jesus is not being cannibalistic. He's not saying that we need to eat his flesh. He is saying we need to partake in, remain in, and abide with him. And one of the ways we do that symbolically is by partaking of communion. Now, other church traditions say there's, there's aspects of Jesus that are present. We don't need to debate that. The reality is that God is present with us. And as we partake in communion, we are saying to the Lord, through our actions, that, God, we long to abide with you. So communion in many churches is known as a sacrament. At our church, it's known as an ordinance. And both of those things essentially mean an outward sign of inward grace. And so an example would be baptism, where somebody is brought down into the water and then raised to new life. Same thing as we partake of communion. This is an outward sign of an inward grace, of choosing to partake in, remain with, and abide with Christ. We are putting him at the forefront. And so this practice, this thing that we do and we make available every week is not so that it becomes routine. It's so that we have this opportunity to retell ourselves and relive the gospel story, which says very simply that you are not enough. And through him, you can be more than enough. That's the gospel story. That we on our own are lifeless and in need of help. And God has made a way through what Jesus has done. And by partaking of communion, we are, we are saying to the Lord, we long to surrender to you. And so God invites us as we come to the table to repent. Repent to the ways that we've made it about us and not about him. Repent to the ways that we have maligned who he is and the goodness of who he is, the holiness of our God. We repent of that and we come to the table to partake and to be renewed by his life. Communion is simple. It is not complex. It is just bread and it is just juice, sometimes wine. It's a thousand-year-old practice. There is nothing innovative about what we're going to do. And it roots us with a people and a place. There's very little technology involved at all as we partake in communion. So there's nothing cool about communion. When you think about coming to church and doing something that's like innovative and really draws people in, it's probably not communion that you first think of. And yet this is the meal that we need more than anything else. This is the meal that pulls us in to the life of Christ so that we partake of his flesh and his blood and be drawn into him. And so 
I think everything we do as a church body is significant and important and none of it should not matter. But the thing that matters most is what we're about to do. Because in the communion meal, we get to say to ourselves, I'm not smart enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not rich enough, I'm not cool enough, but he's enough. And as we partake in communion, we get to remind ourselves, you are not enough, but he is. You are not enough, but he is. And we get to very, very practically remind ourselves of that today and every week.